Welcome to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. In today's broadcast, we hear the second part of Dr. Beakey's sermon on Matthew 2, verse 11, The Wise Men Meeting Jesus. In the first part of this sermon, Dr. Beakey spoke of how we should learn from the wise men about seeing Jesus with spiritual eyes. Now, in the second part, Dr. Beakey will continue his message speaking of worshiping Jesus with reverence and also honoring Jesus with our gifts. As you listen, may the Spirit give you ears to hear, eyes to see the glory of the King, and a heart to give to Him all that you can indeed your whole life. So that even even these pagans came to understand that he is the king, and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. They worshipped him with, with reverence. That's my second point. The seekers did not only become finders, but the finders became worshippers. And the worship is spoken directly about Jesus. They worshipped him. The Bible doesn't say they worshipped Mary, but they worshipped him. Certainly, if the Roman Catholics were right, it would have said they worshipped him and Mary if Mary is somehow to be worshipped. They crown him Lord of all. No, this is not a mere formal worship, a kind of politeness. They're not paying homage out of of a polite societal respect. No, they're worshipping the newborn king. Worship means in Greek, comes from two words, which means proskineo means to kiss, and pros means towards, to kiss towards. It means all my affections goes toward the object of worship. My heart, my will, my mind, my, my entire being, my, my inmost being goes out to worship him who is God, him who is king, the living king of the Jews, the Messiah. They worshipped him from the heart. Now in those days, they fell down often in worship. And uh, we, we need to understand that properly. It's not that they crashed to the floor, but it means they fell down. They became prostrate. They in other words, they laid before the child on their face as a sign of reverence and respect in worship. We tend to get on our knees when we, we pray, but uh, maybe you've known times in your life where you just got totally prostrate before the Lord and just cried out and worshipped him. Uh, that too is, is an acceptable posture in Scripture. And that's what apparently these Wise men are doing here, they pay homage to their deity in a prostrate posture. And this is the Lord God, the real Lord God. And often uh, they would even kiss the ground to pay homage to, because they're in the presence. It's like, it's like Moses, the, the place where we stand is holy ground. We take our shoes from off our feet. We're in the presence of the Almighty. That's how these magi felt. They revere this young child as 
the Messiah, the king. Gentiles, astrologers, worshiping a child who was none other than the everlasting father, the express image of the father's person, the brightness of his glory, King Emmanuel, God with us. Dear friend, may I ask you tonight, are, are, you, are you a worshiper of Jesus? Is Jesus exceedingly precious to you? Do you know what it means to, to fall before him? To, to surrender your entire heart with all of its sins and shortcomings as well as all your desires and affections and, as it were, kiss toward him. That your whole heart goes out to him. And you cry out, unto me, unto me, a child is born and a son is given. Maybe, maybe, it, maybe it took place suddenly in your life for the first time. Or maybe it was more gradual. But do you know it repeatedly in your life that there are times and places where you worship the newborn king with everything, everything that is within you. You know, that, that worship, that's a God thing. That's a Holy Spirit work thing. You, you can't do that on your own. You know that. You've tried to worship God so many times where you could feel that your prayers didn't ascend much beyond the ceiling, if at all. But there are other times in your life, you know, don't you, that you've worshipped the King and it's sweet and you've done it with exceeding great joy. And once you've worshipped that way, you are spoiled for life. You're spoiled for life. Nothing in the world can compare to that worship. Where you become nothing before a Christ who becomes everything. And you crown him literally Lord of all. Lord of your will. Lord of your affections. Lord of your heart. Lord of your mind. Lord of your emotions. And you say, take my hands, Lord. Take my eyes. Take my heart. Take my soul. Let it all be consecrated to thee. As Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us we must do. For it's only our reasonable service. So, so when is the last time? The last time you worship the king with exceeding great joy. What, is it, what does it really mean to worship though? You said it means to have your affections go out, but how do you really define worship? Well, I define it this way. To worship God is to bow down before his majestic glory and by the Holy Spirit and in truth to bring him in and through Jesus Christ and according to the scriptures, the honor and the praise that belong to him alone. Then you just cannot center on him enough. Then you just cannot praise him enough. Then you can say like Jonathan Edwards, the best moments of my life are those that have risen even above my own salvation when I've been caught up with the glory of God and just worshipped him and centered upon him and glorified him with all that is within me. That is genuine worship. That worship is honoring to God. That worship is mediated by Christ. That worship is controlled by Scripture. That worship is offered in spirit and in truth. They worshiped Him. 
Now, that doesn't mean that the Magi knew all the theological ramifications or could have given you a great definition of worship. But it does mean that they, they worshipped from the bottom of their hearts the way I've just described, even though they couldn't put labels upon it all. Worshipping the Lord Jesus means loving Him with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and being willing to do whatever He says. Oh, would you be willing... If you could have Jesus as your Savior and your Lord to give up all the presents that you ever received in your life, not just this time of the year, but your whole life, if you could just have him as your Savior, do you see him as more valuable than everything you've ever received in your life? Do you treasure him as your Savior, as your Lord, as your number one, as your all and in all? Can you say, take the world, but give me Jesus? He's the most important gift ever given. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. That's the way these magi felt. They fell down and they worshipped him. They communed with a toddler who is the king of the universe. This is amazing. Amazing. You see, so many people don't follow the wise men from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. So many stay in Bethlehem. Also today, I'm speaking, of course, figuratively. Jerusalem is a place of worldly wisdom, a place of religious activity and carnal treasures. But Bethlehem is a humble place, a place where you come in spiritual poverty. So many stay in Jerusalem. So many scribes and Pharisees, very religious, but they stay with all their outward worship, with all their head knowledge of the Bible, with all their arrogant pride in religious ceremonies. They could say to Herod, yes, Herod, we know. We know where the king will be born. He'll be born in Bethlehem. They tell Herod that. They have the head knowledge, but they don't go to Bethlehem. But the wise men do. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you you just couldn't make ends meet with your head knowledge? You needed a savior. You were a sinner. You had to go to Bethlehem. You had to go through those open stable doors. You had to fall before the babe in the manger. And pour out your sins and tell him everything as if he knew nothing about you. Yet knowing he knows everything about you. And surrender to him. The king of the Jews. I know this question sounds strange. Sounds strange to Nicodemus too. But have you ever worshipped God? Have you been born again? Does God have your heart Does God have your life? Oh, yes, but I've got so many sins. Of course, of course. That's not what I'm asking. We will fight indwelling sin to our last day. Who has your heart? Who has your heart? Who has your desire? Who is the goal of your life? Then can you say, that's easy to answer. It's Jesus. I long with all my heart. I I wish I could worship him uninterruptedly. And I long for that day when I pray and trust and hope. I will. 
in heaven, eternal worship of the king. What a blessing. These wise men were really blessed. They worshiped him. So the wise men saw Jesus with spiritual eyes. They worshiped him with reverence. And now they honor him with gifts. This is part of their worship. And they give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These weren't gifts of payment. These weren't gifts of uh, meriting reconciliation somehow. These are gifts of love. These are gifts of worship. These are gifts of consecration, gifts of devotion, gifts of honor to him. It was part of their way of saying, we give honor to thee, O king, babe of Bethlehem, king of the Jews. Our text says, when they opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts. So simple. It's so, so beautiful. So these gifts actually are an expression of symbolism of what they thought of Jesus and how they honored him. The wise men may have been ignorant of parts of the symbolism, but parts probably not. They probably understood what they were doing, maybe more than we realize. First, they gave him gold. Gold throughout Scripture, you know, is a symbol of royalty, of kingship. Second Samuel twelve thirty, Rabbah's king wears a crown of gold. Psalm 45, 9 speaks about the queen in the gold of Ophir. King Ahasuerus held out a golden scepter to Queen Esther. In 1 Kings 10, gold is associated with King Solomon ten times. The Messiah to come is going to be a king. And the wise men realize that, so they bring him, they bring him gold. Gold. Because he's the king. The gold of humble confession in obedience to him as our golden king is what they were doing. Even though they didn't realize that from their side, he would see this as gold. Because you see, when God saves us, we become subjects of him. And he restores us as prophets, priests, and kings to him. We become Little kings that honor the infinite king. And the gold of humble confession, it's, it's golden to God. It's his own work. He sees his own work as they surrender their gold unto Jesus. It's what we just sang. Christ shall have dominion over land and sea. And when we surrender him, Gold, we're saying, Lord, thou art king, and we subject ourselves to thy dominion. But they also bring him frankincense. Frankincense literally means pure incense. And you know that the Old Testament word, perhaps, is derived from a root meaning white. And it has an interesting background. When an incision was made in the bark of a certain tree, growing in the limestone rocks of South Arabia, the white, milky juice that flowed out 
was called frankincense. And that juice was considered special. So it was used in temple worship, especially in the sacrifice upon the altar of incense, which you probably know represented prayer, right? So in time, the incense or the frankincense came to be associated with priestly prayer. So in offering incense, burning coals were taken from the altar of burnt offering and placed on the golden altar of incense in the holy place. And the incense was then sprinkled on these coals, and the fragrant smoke that would rise to the heaven, to the heavens, was, was considered symbolical of prayer and thanksgiving of the priests and the people going back up to God. So, for example, it was during such an offering of incense upon the altar that Zacharias was confronted by the angel, Gabriel. Now, the wise men may not have grasped all this, but, but we can. And we know that frankincense is a symbol of prayer. Sometimes when we respond to God, we respond with such love in our hearts that we don't understand all that's going on, maybe. That's still even true for an advanced child of God. But there's a beautiful symbolism here that God sees and God delights in. Frankincense of true prayer and true worship is to him a sweet-smelling savor in his holy nostrils. And they offer this to the king. To the king. Do you know what that means? Do you know sweet moments of communion, of access to the throne of grace, where you sense that your prayers are not just bouncing off the ceiling, but they are rising like incense before God? Do you know times of, as William Bridge put it, the Puritan, "'Tis a sweet thing to pray to God, even though I never get the answer prayed for." Just communion with God in prayer. Pouring out your heart before him. Communing with him through his word. Bringing his own word back to him. Showing him his own handwriting. is sweet. And God delights when his people do so. It's a gift to him. His own work. He works the prayer in you. But it goes back to him. To have, find access with him. Prayer is a glorious thing. It's, it's a true prayer is decreed by the Father. It's merited by the Son. It's then worked in our heart by the Holy Spirit. And by the Spirit, it goes back up to the Son who salts it with the salt of his own sufferings and sprinkles it clean and presents it to the Father. And of course, ultimately, all prayers get answered, even though we think there's no answer. Sometimes no is an answer. Joseph Hall said, good prayers never come weeping back. I either get what I asked for or I get what I should have been asking for in the first place. God does exceeding abundantly above what we ask or even could think to ask in prayer. And then they give him myrrh. Myrrh. Myrrh is a symbol of suffering. Christ's suffering here. Myrrh points us to the basis of Christ's atonement. Myrrh comes from the balsam tree. It was used sometimes as a perfume, but a kind of bitter perfume. And it became a symbol in Bible times of suffering. The bitterness, in some cases, spoke of the bitterness of the bondage of Israel in Egypt. 
But in other cases, it refers to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. It was also used sometimes as an anesthetic. Jesus was offered a mixture of myrrh on the cross mixed with bitter wine, but he turned away. He didn't want the intensity of his suffering to be, to be minimized by, by some anesthetic. He had to taste the full weight of your sin, dear child of God, to pay for it fully. In John 19, 39, Nicodemus used myrrh also in burying Jesus. And so all of this, in one way or another, speaks of various aspects of Jesus' suffering. The, as, the, as the wise men give him this gift, they may not understand all of this yet either, but we do. The gift of suffering that Jesus gives to us, we surrender back to him and praise him for it and worship him for it because it's our atonement. It's our reconciliation ground with God. He's going to go from the manger to the cross. The only way he can be our savior is through the bitterness of myrrh, the bitterness of suffering. So as we bow before him, as we worship him, we do it with gold and frankincense and myrrh. We do it crowning him Lord of all, recognizing that he's the golden king. We do it with prayer and supplication. And we do it based, totally based on his sufferings on our behalf. True worship is always through the means of gold and frankincense and, and myrrh. And we don't forget the myrrh when we truly pray, do we? We know we can only have access to Jesus through his bitter sacrifice. And so these gifts, these three gifts, point us to two things. First, it points us to who Christ is as the great atoning, interceding priest king of his people. And second, it points us to the surrender of our hearts and our lives to this priest king. They present it. Gold and frankincense and myrrh, says our text. They surrendered themselves to this priest king. And this, you see, is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Paul tells us to do just that. He says, render your bodies, your whole being, as a sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable service. You give everything back as you give God the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh to honor him, to give him the best you have, knowing that your best doesn't merit anything, but seeing that he has everything that you need, you surrender everything back to him in thanksgiving, out of consecration to him. So can you identify with the wise men tonight? in seeking Jesus, in being led to Jesus, in worshiping Jesus, and then in surrendering all to Jesus. What we really find in the wise men is a beautiful picture of conversion. A seeker, a seeker after Jesus becomes a finder, and a finder becomes a worshiper, and a worshiper becomes a submitter who submits his whole life as a sacrifice to this blessed King of Kings. 
So what I really want to get at tonight is I want to ask you, are you a wise man? Are you a wise woman, a wise teenager, a wise boy or girl? You see, a wise person is someone who goes and cannot rest until they find Jesus and worship him and surrender all to him. Will you be wise tonight? Will you bend the knee before King Jesus tonight? To to reject Jesus in his constant offerings of himself in every sermon is to be foolish. It's to be a foolish man, a foolish woman, a foolish teenager, a foolish boy and girl. In fact, it's the height of foolishness. Now, I hope this history tonight encourages you. If God can draw these men from a distant land after they hear a rumor about Jesus being born, why can't he save you under the primary means of grace every single week? And if they come and find him and worship him, why can't that happen to you? When you feed upon the scriptures that teach you how to worship him in spirit and truth. Why can't God lead you to the blessed feet of this precious Savior? To surrender yourself to him. You see, don't don't rest until you too, even when you feel like you're far away from God. Come from far then, like these people did. And seek for Christ. Seek to worship him and begin to ask other people. If you don't know Jesus, ask other children of God. Where is he? Tell me how I can find him. Listen to sermons carefully. Seek to obey, to bow, to bend, to prostrate, to worship. Persevere in your search for Jesus. Don't give up at Jerusalem. Go on to Bethlehem and go into the house. I I like that. Don't you like that in our text? And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. You see, they didn't just say, well, the star is above his house. This is where he must be. That's wonderful. Praise the Lord. No, they went into the house. Paul says 165 times in his epistles, we believe into Jesus. It's not enough to know about him. You must know him. You must believe into him. You must embrace him. You must receive him. You must know him. He is salvation. Marks of grace aren't salvation. They're fruits of salvation. But you need to know him, whose name is Jesus, Jehovah, salvation. Go to him. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey a ministry of the Gospel Trumpet. Please consider supporting the broadcast of Doctrine for Life with your financial gifts. For more information on how to donate to this ministry and to download free booklets or audio files of previous broadcasts, please visit our website at gospeltrumpet.net. That's gospeltrumpet.net. William Ames said, 
Theology is the doctrine of living to God. May God write the doctrines of the Bible upon your heart so that you may truly live.